Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the Basilicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 21st, 2021, and this is show number 863. We've got a really big show today with lots of fun things to talk about, so let's dig right in. A few weeks ago, I told you the glorious news that Apple had implemented pivot tables in numbers. I told you with breathless excitement how much I love pivot tables and how thrilled I was. I then told you how to actually use them with a real-life example. I tried to convey my excitement in a way that would convince you that you, too, could know the joy of pivot tables in an app that comes free with your Mac. I was so excited by the new pivot table capability that I decided it was worthy of a video tutorial for Screencast Online. When I'm really excited about a tool, the video is so much easier to do, and this one was a complete joy. I showed how to do the same pivot table on the Mac, iPad, and iPhone, adding tidbits along the way to show how awesome they are on all of the devices. While I was working on the tutorial, I happened to be chatting with Terry Austin on Telegram, and I mentioned I was doing a new tutorial for Screencast Online. He told me, great! He said he really enjoys my tutorials. I took that as high praise because Terry does video tutorials himself, so he knows how hard it is to do them well. Then I told him the next one I was going to be doing was going to be on pivot tables, and he wrote back one word, pass. Well, I thought that was really interesting, so I took a few paragraphs to tell him why I thought they're cool and the problem they solve, and I gave him a few examples, and then he said, hey, I've got these rosters of students I'm working with that are a real pain to manipulate. I wonder if pivot tables could help. I should watch this. Now, think about the problem I face with the rest of the Screencast Online audience. I have to hook them quickly. I have to come up with some good examples that would get them to maybe play more than the first five seconds. So the ideas I came up with were, perhaps you're a sysadmin at a university and have a 3,000-line spreadsheet with user IDs, class names, instructors, and testing requirements, and you need to condense these down to some actionable information. That was actually sort of a, a, a melding of the problem that Terry's trying to solve with some problems that Bart often has to solve at, at the university where he works. My next idea was maybe you're the manager of a large city's intramural sports team and you've got detailed data about the players, the sports they're playing, the field names, and the coaches you need, situational awareness in case a storm was coming through town on how to contact people efficiently. Then I thought maybe you've been doing freelance work, you've downloaded all of your income and expense, and you want to figure out where your income is coming from by category. What if you downloaded your health data for all your exercise and you want to obsess over it, but you need to see it summarized by type of exercise with total calories burned? So I thought maybe those four ideas would kind of trigger people to pay attention, but I had to get them to start push. I had to get them to play push play first. So I talked to Don McAllister, who writes a newsletter where he describes the tutorial, and I explained that it's a tough subject to get people to watch and asked maybe he could help pump up the excitement. Luckily, Don is a big fan of pivot tables too, and here's what he wrote. I wanted to give a big plug for the full Screencast Online tutorial this week, Pivot Tables in Numbers. Pivot tables are fantastic, and their omission for numbers was probably the reason I kept a copy of Excel on my Mac. Pivot tables just make it so easy to manipulate and analyze huge data sets, and I can't think of anyone better to illustrate that than Allison Sheridan. She is also a huge fan of those. Heck, she even thinks using them is fun. Don't be put off if you're not a huge spreadsheet user. Pivot tables have many uses, and Allison's enthusiasm for them shines through in this week's show. Be sure to check it out. 
Well, anyway, I, I tell you all that because if you've been hanging back on the subject of pivot tables and you aren't yet convinced, I hope you'll take a look at the teaser video I've posted in the uh, show notes and consider trying out the free seven-day trial of the Screencast Online tor tutorial service so you can watch this tutorial and the amazing back catalog of content. If you're already a subscriber to Screencast Online, please push play. I promise it's really, really fun. Next up, we've got a review from Caleb Fong. Greetings, Captain Allison and fellow Nocilla Castaways. This is a quick review of the Heyday Wireless Molded Tip Braided Earbuds. In the grand Nocillacast tradition, what is the problem to be solved? You want, or need, wireless headphones, but you're not ready to plunk down the clams for AirPods. To set the level of expectations, these earbuds cost the grand amount of $19.99 USD MSRP at Target. These are not going to overwhelm anyone, but they're also not hot garbage. They use the Bluetooth 5.0 spec. They have a built-in microphone, more on this later, and 8 hours of use time to 3 hours of charge time. A wire which connects the two earbuds is also wrapped in an attractive nylon fiber, which is pleasing to the eye and functional, albeit a little bit noisy when using the mic. Since these joined but wireless earbuds are on Bluetooth 5.0, listening to music and podcasts is really rather nice. They're not going to impress your audiophile friends, but they're clear and have a decent sound stage. While listening to my K-pop station on Pandora, the highs weren't fizzy and the bass was acceptable. When using Apple Music, the audio I had purchased from my library sounded similarly. I am lacking any real bass-heavy music in my very space-limited uh, iPhone, but Cream's White Room sounded good, as did my purchased versions of KDA Drum Go Dumb, the Jurassic Park theme from the soundtrack, obviously, and 30 Seconds to Mars' Beautiful Lie. That all said, while the bass was present, it wasn't very pronounced, more like a punchy lower mid-range sound which is kind of what I would expect, honestly. Over in Podcastlandia, the vocals for most voices, even the lower registers like Roman Mars, were very satisfying. All in all, for the price, you won't hate these. They are exceedingly adequate. The buttons and interactions with the phone are similarly solid, if not almost uninteresting because they just work. The connection sound of the earbuds is pleasant without needing to be be so overwhelmingly loud that I need to pair them without putting them in my ears. Now to the weakest part of these headphones, the microphone. Surprising no one, the mic is very small. It's located on the right hand side pod. The other pod appears to be for the battery. As we are fairly well aware, small mics don't sound great. This mic is further hampered by the fact that physical movement is pretty readily captured as the joining wire drags across your hair or shirt. The placement of the mic and the controls around it lead to a basic sound which is pretty good, but it's not impressive or easy to work with. This is the Heyday Molded Tip Bluetooth Audio Headphones Microphone Sound Sample. The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. For a more fair comparison of sound quality, I have also normalized the preceding clip 
in the Hokusai editor. This is the Heyday Molded Tip Bluetooth Audio Headphones Microphone Sound Sample. The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. So what's the verdict? Do you need to have a set of Bluetooth headphones now? Do you want to not have to deal with yet another knockoff company posing as a reputable brand name? Are you more concerned with playback than phone calls? Perhaps you're getting them for a younger person who may not have the best reputation for keeping expensive things. If any of these are true, these may be a good balance of good enough at the right price. See you all later. And remember, stay subscribed. Well, I love that, Caleb, because uh, we tend to do a lot of reviews of super expensive stuff and having something, like you say, that's good enough at a great price, that's fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that review of the Heyday Molded Tip Bluetooth Earbuds. I know a lot of people, like Bart, love spaces on macOS and couldn't live without them. But for some reason, I cannot figure out how to make them work for me. Don't get me wrong, I like the idea of spaces, but they seem to make my workflow much, much less efficient. Before we get in too deep, let me explain what spaces are, just in case someone isn't familiar with the concept. On macOS, if you do a four-fingered swipe up on a Magic Trackpad or double tap with two fingers on a Magic Mouse, you'll reveal all of your open windows on your desktop. And then you, the menu bar at the top will say Desktop, or possibly Desktop 1 if you have multiple monitors attached. This view you're now in is called Mission Control. You can also get to Mission Control with an Apple keyboard using the F3 key. If you've got a Touch Bar Mac, you're on your own figuring out which virtual key to use. I tested it and I could not find a combination to make the option available with Touch Bar. It's probably there, but I couldn't figure it out. Once you have Mission Control activated, if you bring your cursor to the top of the screen, the area where Desktop 1 was displayed will expand to reveal a thumbnail of your desktop with all of its open windows sprinkled all over it. Desktop 1 is your one and only space. Remember, I'm going to be saying Desktop 1 because I have multiple monitors. If you only have one, it'll just say Desktop. On the far right of the screen, you'll see a plus button inviting you to add another space. Another method to create a second space is to drag the app you want in a separate space up onto that area at the top of the screen. It will automatically create it when you let go. The app you drag up into its own space will be automatically made full screen in that space. If you drag a second app into that space, Mission Control will put the two apps in a one-third, two-third split view and keep filling the screen. You can modify that split ratio by sliding the drag handle between the two apps when you're in that space. Now that you've created a new space with that application, you can no longer see it because you're still in Desktop 1. To switch to the new space you just created, you have a couple of different options. If you repeat the gesture or function key dance to go into Mission Control, you can then tap on the space you want to enter at the top of the screen. Now that's fun, you know, once or twice, but you probably want a more efficient way to switch spaces. A four-fingered swipe right-left on a Magic Trackpad or a two-fingered swipe on a Magic Mouse will flip between them. If you prefer keystrokes, control left and right arrow will flip you between spaces. Now that we know what spaces are, and we know how to make them, and we know how to move between them, let's back up and answer the question of what problem are we trying to solve? I can see several problems that spaces could solve for me if I could figure them out. First of all, no matter how many displays I have and how big they are, I still end up with windows littered all over the place and I'm constantly moving them and hiding apps to get things out of my way. 
Right now, I've got a 14-inch MacBook Pro hooked up to the 30-inch XDR display, and for fun, I hooked up a vintage 27-inch Apple Cinema display. And yet, I'm still moving Windows to try to see what I'm working on. And for those of you who are going to tell me to use Moom so that I have a sp specific place for specific apps, that doesn't work for me too. Wherever I put them, I end up wanting them someplace else almost immediately. Now, it is humanly possible to live a spaces-free life and not have the anarchy with which I live. I've seen it done in my own house. Steve has a 27-inch iMac with a 27-inch LG 5K display, and most of his applications live in very specific locations. He's got his messaging apps like Telegram and Messages and TweetBot over on the LG, and they're arranged just so, and he uses Chrome in the middle of his iMac screen. I haven't studied what else he has arranged, but I know his display looks the same every time I walk into his den. Now, I've tried to be disciplined, like I said, using Moom and everything, but invariably, I'm working in 12 applications at once, and they cannot maintain position and still allow me to get things done. If I put apps into different spaces, they would stay clean and neat because they'd either be in full screen or split screen mode, so my untidy habits could not take over. Now, Bart is very good at compartmentalizing his tasks, and I think it's one of the reasons he likes spaces. I imagine he keeps his messaging apps in their own space. This would allow him to focus on the task he's working on rather than having scrolling Twitter feeds or messages coming in and distracting him. You may have noticed that Bart is highly productive, and I think his use of spaces and other methods to focus is a big part of the reason why. In contrast, I have Telegram and messages and mail and Slack updating constantly in front of my eyes while I'm trying to write a blog post or outline a video tutorial. I even keep notifications turned on. If there's an animated GIF in any of those applications, all hope of focus is lost. In fact, while I was trying to write this up, I had the trackpad gestures preference pane open, and I couldn't stop looking at it out of the corner of my eye because it's got an animation on it. It would seem that I could benefit from using spaces to minimize these distractions and help me focus. However, in my repeated attempts over the last five years to make spices, sp sorry, spaces work for me, after no more than a day, I disabled them again. I think I can articulate the reasons why, and maybe someone or many someones can help me figure out how to get over these hurdles. The main reason I keep abandoning spaces is that it feels far less efficient to work. I'm going to walk through some examples so I can explain in detail the kinds of problems I run into. Let's say I want to work on a blog post for the show. I write the blog post in Mars Edit, and as I'm describing how to do something in an app, I take screenshots of that app. I have them open in preview so I can save them to a specific directory in the finder and then I drag them into Mars Edit from the finder. So I need Mars Edit, I need the app, I need the finder all open at the same time. If I'm going to focus on blogging, I need those all together. Oh, and I also need the app that I'm writing about all in the same space. Now, remember I explained to you that you could do, you get two apps in split screen in a single space? Turns out you can't drag a third app into the space if you created it that way. That means in my blog space, I'd need the app and Mars Edit in one space, and after I save a screenshot, I'd have to flip back to the space with a finder, and then how do I drag that screenshot into Mars Edit? Because Mars Edit isn't visible to me anymore. I end up dropping out of spaces to do it. Well, I did find a workaround to that problem. You can assign specific apps 
to to uh, all spaces, specific spaces, or no spaces at all. Not sure what that last option does. Does it never show up? It's not in space? I don't know. Isn't that like closing it? I'm not sure what that's for. But anyway, let's walk through how I would add the finder to all spaces so that if I need to drag an image from the finder, it would be available to me wherever I was. First, you need to create a second space. And I think this only works if you create an empty space with the plus button in Mission Control. Once an app is in full screen in a space, assigning an app to that space doesn't do anything. It doesn't change it. So to add a space or an app to spaces, you right click in the dock uh, on the icon for the app you want to show in all spaces. If it's not already in the dock, you'll need to launch the app so it's there for you to right click on it. In the pop-up menu, choose options and then under assign to, choose which desktop you want to assign it to. Or in my case, I would choose all desktops. I want the finder vi visible everywhere. Now, the reason this is useful beyond being able to see the finder in all desktops is that when it opens in that new empty space, it does not open in full screen. That means we can have a lot of apps open in one space. Now you can open another application in that space, such as Mars Edit, Preview, and the app I'm writing about. Now, here's the downside to allowing an app to be in all spaces, also known as desktops. The first problem is that if an app is on all desktops, it's exactly the same in all desktops. If I open my weekly folder for my blog post in Desktop 2, it opens that same folder in Desktop 1. How is that helpful at all? If I'm trying to focus on programming on one desktop and blogging in another, I would literally never want the Finder open to the same space. This happens with other apps too. Let's say I assign Safari to all desktops. And when I'm focusing on programming, I want pbs.bartificer.net open in that space. If I decide to take a break and blog for a while, in my blogging space, Safari will also be open to pbs.bartificer.net. If I change it in my blogging space and later go back to programming, I will have lost my place on Bart's site. Here's another big problem. I notice that after a while, I'm assigning more and more apps to every space because I need them there, which means I've basically recreated the anarchy I had in the first place. I also have trouble if I get too many spaces open. It does seem to help to have different wallpaper backgrounds dedicated to the different contexts in which you want to work. So that kind of does help. For example, programming tends to lend itself to a darker view. I'm not sure why that is, because I generally don't like dark backgrounds to my apps, but I find myself working in VS Code with a dark background more often than not. If I have my code up in one space, I can right-click on the desktop and change the background to a dark gray. Even with a gray VS Code window, this still looks pretty good. It's clear at a glance which context I'm in. But now let's have another irritation of spaces. I did just what I described. I set the programming desktop to dark gray. In order to do that, it launched system preferences to the desktop and screensaver pane for me to change that background. So far, so good. I decided I wanted to change the background in another space. So I flipped over to my blogging desktop and I decided to change the color of the background there. I right-clicked on the desktop, chose Change Desktop Background, and guess what happened? It flipped me over to my programming space because I'd left System Preferences open in that space. How annoying is that? All right, I'll quit System Preferences, flip back to my blogging space, right-click on the desktop again, and open System Preferences to change the color. That is super inefficient, and that kind of thing happens constantly when I'm working with spaces. Here's another example. In my blogging space, I took a screenshot for the show notes. As I mentioned, I have my screenshots automatically open in preview so I can entitle them, copy the name I gave it, and then save it to the right folder. When I took the screenshot in my blogging space, it flipped me over to my first desktop. Why? 
because Preview was open in that space from a previous screenshot. But it's worse than that. When Preview opened, the new screenshot I had taken was not there. I flipped back to my blogging space and the new screenshot was there. Well, if it knew enough to open the screenshot in the right space, why did it flip me over to the other space first? Makes no sense. Side effects like this really interrupt the workflow for me. If I can't predictably know where a window is going to show up, how can I stay focused? Which is the whole purpose of using spaces. Even with spaces dedicated to certain activities and with the apps activated that I can predict I'll need in each space, there are these constant one-offs. Just uh, while I was writing this up, I needed to send a message to my cat sitter. Well, I have a dedicated space for my messaging apps now, but I needed to refer to my calendar to tell her which dates to come. Guess what? Calendar isn't activated for my messaging space. I either have to flip back and forth, and this could be a flip across multiple spaces, and then hope that my little pea brain can remember the dates as I flip, or I have to pull one of the apps into the other space, thereby defeating the entire purpose of spaces. I found one way to be a bit more efficient in switching spaces. If you click on the dock icon of the app you want to see, it will automatically flip you to the right space. I like that because I don't have to remember which desktop the app is in, nor do I have to flip multiple times to get to one that might be three spaces over. Now, you may have noticed that I'm using the terms spaces and desktops interchangeably. I'm doing that on purpose because I don't actually understand when to use which term. When you're setting up spaces, it shows you the name of the desktop in Mission Control. So are you switching to a new desktop when you go there, or are you switching to a new space? To make this more entertaining, if you have multiple displays, such as a laptop and an external monitor, they all have their own independent sets of desktops. At the time I was writing this, my main external display was showing desktops 1, 2, 3, and 4. The, main, the Apple Cinema display was showing me desktop 5, and the internal display on the MacBook was called desktop 6. I'm in desktop 3 on the main display, so does that mean the space I'm in is really desktop 3, 5, and 6? If I use a, a four-fingered swipe up on the main display and it changes me to desktop 4, is the space now defined as 4, 5, and 6 instead of 3, 5, and 6? What defines a space anyway? Right now, I only have one desktop created on the internal display and the Apple Cinema display, but I could keep going and create multiple desktops in them and have even better anarchy. And what happens to all of those spaces when I unplug my laptop from these displays? Do they collapse in on themselves, forming some kind of black hole in spaces? Yes, that's exactly what they do. I tried unplugging the two displays and the desktops all collapsed onto the laptop until I had desktops one to six all on the laptop. So. Now what is a space? One thing I haven't explained is how to get rid of spaces, or, or are they called desktops? <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, if you create a desktop by making an app go full screen, simply switching to that desktop and then using the green button on the upper left to take it out of full screen will remove the desktop, or space. If you've dragged a second app into a full screen desktop so the two apps show in a split screen view, it's a little bit trickier to, to get rid of that space in one maneuver. First, use your gesture or keystroke to see Mission Control, and when you hover over the desktop with the two apps in split screen, you'll see a double arrow pointing inwards shown over the thumbnail. Click that, and your desktop will vaporize, and both apps will jump into whatever desktop you have open. If you've got a desktop with apps littered all over it, like I do already, then hovering over the thumbnail in Mission Control will show you an X button, which will close the desktop and pour those apps all over one another onto the other desktop you have open. 
I have to admit that when I closed out all of the desktops after running these experiments, I was kind of overwhelmed with how much information was on my screen. I'll have to go back to my method of using command option H to hide all applications except the one I'm currently working on as a way to maintain what's left of my sanity. I think you might have a flavor by now for why I keep reverting to my annoying window littered, distraction filled computing life without spaces. I truly want to enjoy spaces. I really, really do. But every time I work with them, I find too many problems. I might give it a whirl with programming because that's the most challenging thing I do, but for everything else, it seems like pure aggravation for me. If you have methods or strategies that help you work around these problems I have with spaces, I'd sure like to hear about them. Maybe if I told myself that I had to live with spaces for three straight weeks, I would find a pattern to the spaces desktop madness and learn to love spaces. I did that many years ago when I told myself I had to drive the speed limit for three months, and I told myself if I hated it after that, those three months, I could go back to my evil ways. And you know what? I've been driving the speed limit ever since because it worked for me. But I got to say, I think loving spaces would be harder than loving driving the speed limit. This week's hero of the show is Kenneth Kleinman, who decided to take the option of doing a one-off donation to help support the show. He went to podfeet.com slash PayPal, and he typed in a dollar amount that he felt showed the value he gets and the appreciation he feels for the work we do here. I love that we have so many different ways to support the show, and that Kenneth took the time and his hard-earned money to exercise this option. You know, it really makes a difference, not just in helping pay the bills, but as I told him, it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy that you get value out of the shows. In 2019, I bought a Tesla Model 3, and when I bought it, I needed to make a decision on whether to buy it with full self-driving capability. The technology wasn't available yet, but by buying the capability in advance, I was promised I was getting a far better deal on it. FSD, as it's called, cost $5,000 at that time on top of the price of the car. They gave me no promise of when the full capability could be enabled. Now, Steve and I wanted to get an electric vehicle for environmental reasons, but we were also really interested in autonomous driving. Based on humanity's historically bad record of paying attention while driving, I really look forward to the day when humans are not allowed to drive motor vehicles. We both believe in the self-driving future. That's why I coughed up the extra $5,000. Last year, Steve bought a Tesla Model Y, and by 2020, the price, as they'd uh, promised, to add non-enabled future self full self-driving had gone up to $7,000. For the same reason as before, Steve paid for FSD. It's now late 2021, and if you buy a Tesla and want full self-driving, it will cost you $10,000 to add the capability. On the one hand, this makes me look like a super smart shopper because I got the functionality I can't use for only half the price. Tesla also has a subscription FSD program where you're able to rent the capability month to month if the hardware in your Tesla supports FSD, as all newer Teslas do. The additional features that are currently available for those who pay for full self-driving in the U.S. include auto lane change, auto park, summon, smart summon, and navigate on autopilot. Even without full self-driving, Model S, X, 3, and Y Teslas support traffic-aware, cruise control, and auto steer. Now, I do have the navigate on autopilot, which is pretty cool, and it works fairly well. It's designed for freeway and highway use. If you select a destination in your Tesla and you engage Navigate on Autopilot, your car will drive you from the freeway on-ramp to the off-ramp closest to your destination. Once you get on the freeway, the car will automatically steer to maintain your lane and drive you to your destination off-ramp, change lanes to pass slower cars, maintain a safe distance to the car in front of you, and even change freeways when required. 
As I said, it does work pretty well. Of course, driver attentiveness is required while in in any self-driving mode. The driver must be sufficiently alert to take over the drive if the autopilot behaves incorrectly. To help enforce this, the Teslas will sense if you have not been holding or applying slight pressure to the steering wheel on a regular basis, and it'll disengage autopilot after a couple of warnings if it senses this condition repeatedly. Now, the reason I told you this entire backstory is that Tesla has begun rolling out the beta of full self-driving, which provides additional self-driving features. You can think of FSD beta as extending navigate on autopilot features from freeways to city streets. This is clearly much more challenging, since a car now needs to automatically recognize and navigate traffic lights, stop signs, pedestrians, bicycles, unmarked roads, and other challenges not encountered on freeways. Steve, for some reason, was super excited about this, and he studied up on how to get in on the beta program. In order to qualify for the beta, you have to enable a monitoring app on your car that will track and score your driving over a rolling 30-day period. The Tesla mobile app shows you an aggregate safety score from 0 to 100 and also shows you a trip-by-trip score. The safety score is measured on five driving criteria. Forward collision warnings, hard braking, aggressive turning, unsafe following, and forced autopilot disengagements. I'd like you to think about what's missing on this list of safety criteria. Where's speeding? Where's aggressive acceleration? Where's cutting off a pedestrian? Where's constantly swerving lane to lane to pass people? Where's running a red light? None of these things make any difference in your safety score. Now, Steve enabled the beta program on both of our cars, and we tried to drive as carefully as we could in hopes of getting 100 points on our safety score. The FSD beta software was going to roll out to people with scores of 100 first, and then in a few weeks, the 99s, then the 98s, and so on. Before I tell you the rest of the story, I want you to know a couple of things. I am not the world's best driver. I really do try to be, but I don't succeed. I must be a terrible driver if I can admit this, because according to a psychological study at New York University, 88% of Americans believe they're better than average drivers. Think about that for a moment. While I'm not a great driver, I don't drive aggressively. I don't tailgate. I don't swerve around slower cars. I don't slam on the brakes. I do love to accelerate quickly in my Model 3, and in fact, that's probably my favorite thing about the car. Steve, on the other hand, is a very good driver. I've been in the car when someone else makes a mistake, and he instinctively makes the exact right move to avoid what looked like an inevitable accident. However, I would call him a mildly aggressive driver. We started with the safety score monitoring, and within a few days, I was at 99 and he was at 96. Now, you know I'm far too good of a person to ever rub his nose in on that, right? Heck no, I was all over that. But then I got a single collision avoidance warning, and my score dropped to a 79. Now, Steve had every right to mock me for it, but instead, he chose the high road, and he was sympathetic. As I've said, I'm realistic about my driving, but I think uh, Tesla's collision avoidance warning is not working properly. I know this sounds like justification for my bad driving, but hear me out first. Let's say you're driving on a straight road and somebody turns left in front of you to go into a side street. As a human, you can measure their trajectory based on their current speed. Now, technically, they might just suddenly stop in the middle of the turn, but given enough distance to stop if they do, you would proceed at your normal speed and pass well after they complete their turn. I think the Tesla should be able to figure that out, but Tesla's collision avoidance warning loses its ever-loving mind when this happens. Unless you actually 
take your foot off the accelerator and get ready for the brake, it will get upset with you. You can be 200 feet from the intersection and you'll still get that warning that will ruin your safety score. Here's another example. We live off of a street with some very deep drainage dips at each intersection. Remember these because they come up at the plot again later. As you drive down this street, each driver, if they're paying attention, will slow down enough to go through the dip to avoid bottoming out their car, and then they will immediately speed up as they come out of the dip. I was driving along with plenty of room behind the car in front of me when they slowed down to take the dip. I got a collision avoidance warning for that. I guarantee you there was a 0% chance I was going to hit the person in front of me. I also got a few aggressive turn warnings, but <laughs> those were on me. You see, the center of gravity of my car with its low profile and a giant heavy battery underneath makes it so much fun to take turns really quickly. So I'll take that one. As it turns out, collision avoidance warnings do the most possible damage to your safety score. The safety score is also calculated based on incidents per 100 miles driven. Getting two collision avoidance warnings made my getting back to my uh, getting my total score back up high with how few miles I actually drive was kind of like trying to get your GPA up your senior year after fooling around in your freshman year. So here's the really sad news to this story. I successfully got to 99 before Steve. To be honest, I didn't want to turn on FSD beta first. I wanted him to go first. He was so excited, though, that we enabled it on my car. As of the time that you're hearing this, the current version of FSD beta is 10.4. Tesla software versions are continually updated with bug fixes and enhancements, and right now 10.5 is already on the horizon and being tested. And now, after all that, I will now tell you what I think of Tesla's full self-driving beta. It's terrible. It's like a student driver who is also drunk. I think calling an alpha would be an insult to alpha software everywhere. Let me elaborate by describing the notes we took on our very first test. We decided to drive 3.6 miles to our friend's house with me at the wheel and then the 3.6 miles back with Steve at the wheel. I will say that I'm really happy Steve was with me for this first test because I don't think he would have believed me if he hadn't witnessed it himself. All right, I backed out of my driveway and I pulled to the curb. There were a couple of trash, can, a little, trash cans a little ways ahead of me next to the curb. There were a couple of trash cans a little ways ahead of me next to the curb. I enabled full self-driving with two downward strokes of the stock on the steering column. The car drove straight at the trash cans and I had to slam on the brakes. I had driven 10 feet so far. I enabled FSD again and I let it drive to the first intersection where the light was red. It correctly came to a stop and turned on the right turn signal, but it did not pull to the right as it should have. There wasn't a, a marked pocket, so maybe we should let it off the hook. But it also didn't make the turn against the red light on its own. Now, since then, I've learned that it will eventually turn right on a red light, but it waits a very long time and is extremely cautious, which maybe is a good thing. When the light turned green, the car made a successful right turn. It picked up speed until it was going 35 miles per hour, which was the speed limit. I happened to be on the road I described earlier with those very steep dips, and it barreled straight ahead at 35 miles an hour right into one of these dips. I was forced to hit on the brakes to avoid inevitable damage to my car. I came up to another intersection where it correctly navigated into the left turn lane and it put on the signal. Now, this was a tricky intersection because it had a green arrow, but FSD Beta correctly recognized it and made the left turn. However, it made this turn in many small jerky adjustments rather than a smooth curve, very much like a student driver who doesn't know how far to turn the, the wheel. 
but its bigger error was that as it made the turn, it headed right towards the curb of the median separating the ongoing uh, the oncoming lanes. I had to rest control and turn properly into the lane. This particular error happened consistently throughout our test drive. As we were now tootling along at 40 miles per hour on a main road, the car suddenly slowed way down with no one in front of me. <laughs> that was great. Then it stopped a green light. I could see no reason why it had trouble misinterpreting this particular light when it clearly understood the much more subtle left turn arrow on an otherwise red light. Later, as we continued on our trip, a driver cut me off, pulling very closely in front of me, coming in from the right. FSD did not react at all, forcing me to hit the brakes to avoid a collision. After all the collision avoidance warnings it gave me when I was driving, this mistake on its part really annoyed me. On our drive, we encountered a T-intersection without any traffic control. The car inched forward, and on screen it said, Autopilot creeping forward to check for visibility. We thought that was actually pretty great. Anyway, at this point, we had finally driven an entire 3.6 miles. We stopped the car, waited for our heart rates to drop back down, and wiped our sweaty palms. I then switched places and put Steve now behind the wheel. It had whole new entertainment in store for Steve. For some reason, it started to automatically lower the speed of the vehicle to well below the speed limit. At one point, it changed it down to 22 miles per hour when we were in a 35 mile per hour zone. We couldn't find any reason for why it was doing this, and I haven't experienced it again since, so maybe it was just a fluke. We had a couple of left turn pocket maneuvers on his drive, and it didn't consistently make the turn when it was allowed to do so. What it did consistently do was slow way down just as it got into the left turn pocket, not moving all the way forward to the limit line. This is about the quickest way you can aggravate another human in Los Angeles. We had to keep hitting the accelerator when we went into left turn pockets. On each and every left turn, it also consistently tried to run over the curb of the median as I described earlier. Thinking maybe we were just nervous Nellies and it wouldn't actually have hit the curb, but it just, it just would have gotten close, Steve decided to let it go on its own at one intersection because the median was painted and not a physical curb. Nope, the car drove probably a good foot over the double yellow line as it made the turn. As we neared home, we were on a three-lane road where the right lane merges in shortly before a big intersection. This merge is clearly painted on the road. This car changed lanes from the center to the right lane, just as that merge was starting. Knowing this was foolish, Steve pulled the car back into the left. Now we were in a very wide lane as the two lanes narrowed down, so the car decided the center of that massive lane was the right place to be when a human driver would have known to hug the left side as the right was merging in. We've seen it do this on merging lanes on the freeway too, so it's definitely not got the hang of it yet. At this point, our 7.2 mile trip had ended and we were both emotionally exhausted. Now, feedback is very important in any beta testing. Tesla, Tesla has a couple of methods for this. They explicitly tell you to tap the video icon on the top of the screen that was added with the FSD beta software. Now, think about this. I've got a drunk student driver in control of the car. Do you seriously want me to take my eyes off the road long enough to find a 1.5 centimeter wide icon on the screen and tap it so you can grab the video evidence of how the car messed up? I'm not likely to do that. Now, the other option, which is available on all Teslas, no matter the software, is to use the right scroll button on the steering wheel. This button, when clicked in, engages voice commands. One thing you can do is say, bug report, and as quickly as you can, describe what went wrong. I am serious about saying it quickly. You have like maybe six seconds to blurt out whatever went wrong. 
I'm not sure that's as good as capturing the video, so if I safely can, I will try to tap that little video icon, but not if it endangers my life or the lives of others. Steve has continued to chase and keep the elusive 99 score, but he keeps it getting kicked back to 98. Recently, we were on a long drive, and I can testify he was at least seven or eight car lengths behind the car in front of us, and the car gave off a collision avoidance warning for no reason. It was really tragic because he'd gotten up to 99, but he needed to hold it there, and because of the stupidity of the algorithm, he lost his 99 again. Steve has said that he's driving much more cautiously than he used to, and he's noticed he's less anxious in some ways because of that. I noticed that when I started driving the speed limit, by the way. On the other hand, he's anxious because he wants that score to go up, so it's been a very double-edged sword for him. The 98s are getting into the beta soon with the release of FSD beta version 10.5, so hopefully the car won't make any dumb judgments on him till then, and he'll be able to enjoy the fun of having a drunk student driver in charge of a 5,000-pound vehicle. Now, we do have some unanswered questions about the beta program. One is whether our individual vehicles are actually learning. Do we have to let each student car drive frequently so that it gets the hang of it? I kind of assume, perhaps erroneously, that the algorithms were all coming down from the cloud and the collective was learning, but based on how bad it is, we're wondering if that might be incorrect. Also, our cars are equipped with a radar, which is used to estimate the distance to vehicles and other objects at the head of the car, and, and how quickly they're approaching and things like that. Now, newer Teslas only have optical sensors. FSD beta software eliminates the use of the radar and only uses the optical sensors. We have both, but it just uses the optical sensors. Tesla calls the use of optical sensors only and enhanced AI algorithms for self-driving Tesla vision. Sounds like WandaVision. Anyway, we're wondering if the removal of the radar is an explanation of how much worse the experience has been than we expected it to be. The bottom line is, we're quite surprised at how poor self-driving is in this full self-driving beta and has been in my car. We're still bullish on self-driving as a long-term future goal, but we're sad that it feels much further away in time than we expected. I look forward to Steve's experience with FSD beta on his Model Y, and I hope that maybe it works better for his car. For now, I only rarely let it drive my car because it's just too darn nerve-wracking. Our tiny tip comes to you courtesy of Marty Gensius in our Slack. He wrote it up in podfeet.com slash Slack. It is a useless tip, and it adds no real value, but it may surprise and delight you. He posted the idea, but I'm going to do a lot more elaborate explanation with full screenshots in the show notes that you can follow along. What Marty figured out is that you can change your avatar for your Mac into an animated Memoji. I'll explain first how to set it up, and then I'll tell you why this becomes even more fun. Before you can play along on your Mac, you need to create your own Memoji using your iPhone or iPad Pro. I'm not going to walk through the instructions for that because Apple has a support article explaining it over at support.apple.com, and of course there's a link to that in the show notes. If you don't want to do that or don't have a device to create your own Memoji, you can play along with one of the animated ones that Apple provides, you know, like the octopus or the alien or poop. Anyway, once you have a Memoji created, it's time to set it up on macOS. Launch System Preferences and click on whatever image or icon you've added to your account that shows at the top of the System Preferences screen. The pane that comes up will have a series of options down the left side, including Camera and Photos, and we want to select Memoji at the top of that list. 
With Memoji selected, you also want to make sure that you're on the Memoji tab at the top of the page. You should see your Memoji along with the animals and other animated options, you know, like poop. Anyway, now select the Memoji you want to use from the grid of options. Now select the Pose tab from the top of the pane. This will allow us to choose what your Memoji looks like when it's static and not animated. You should see a grid of possible poses from winking to skeptical to happy. I chose the option with my tongue sticking out because that's actually a pose I often use in real life. By the way, I noticed Steve chose the sticking the tongue out one too. Anyway, once you've chosen the pose, click Save. At this point, you'll see the static pose Memoji as your avatar in System Preferences. It also becomes your avatar in lots of other places. I know it's in Messages as, as seen by people you chat with, and I also noticed that when I went into um, Fitness Plus on the Apple TV, it was that Memoji. So this might be like your iCloud Memoji, so it might be everywhere. Anyway, the real fun is when you log into your Mac from locking the screen, logging out, or restarting. Assuming you don't have an Apple Watch set to automatically unlock your Mac, which will destroy the effect because it's so quick, you'll see your Memoji looking around on the login screen. As you move your mouse around, I get the feeling that she's sort of following you. I'm not positive, but I think so, because I know if you pass right over her face, she sort of focuses straight at you. Now, click in the password field, and she'll tilt her head down and watch you type. For fun, mistype your password. If it fails, she'll make a face that shows she's very disappointed in you. When you successfully type in your password, a split second before you're shown your desktop, she'll give you a giant grin. If you want to see what this looks like, I made a short video and I embedded it into the show notes demonstrating the effect. As I said at the beginning of this very important tip, this tip has zero nutritional value, but it absolutely delights me. Thank you, Marty, for telling us about it. Well, as much fun as this has been for me, it's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at allison at podfeed.com anytime you like? Have you got methods for using spaces that you think work really well and you want to send me an email about it? Use that address. You can send me questions or suggestions, or you can record reviews and send them to me that way. Now, I've left Facebook, so Twitter is a good place to follow me online at podfeed. Better yet, join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can find wonderful things like that really, really important emoji tip that you just heard about from Marty Gentius. You can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocella castaways in there. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation like Kenneth did at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.